It's Old Timey Crimey presents The Murders on Lover's Lane, Fort Wayne, Part 2. Part 2. Dos. De. Other uh, languages, words for two uh, that I don't know. Dual. Sure. That's I'm... Korean. Oh, there you go. Okay. All right. All right. We are, uh, we, we know a lot of things. Um, so, well, here's the thing I know. I was going to tell our audience that uh, the term serial killer maybe wasn't invented yet. It definitely wasn't in the common vernacular yet in 1925, the time period that we're working with. Back then it was oatmeal. Yes, yes. Whenever somebody killed multiple people, you called them an oatmeal. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to get that oatmeal with the last thing we do. I really wish that was the case and they just circle through breakfast foods. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. Can we move on to waffles? Uh, a popular breakfast food, uh, I'm not sure if it was in 1925, but in some eras, uh, was postums. So postums. Uh, we're going to put an all-points bulletin out for postums. But yes, the, the common story about the term serial killer is that it didn't enter the common vernacular until the late 1970s. Robert K. Ressler, an FBI agent, is generally credited with its creation. But... It may have actually come about earlier, uh, closer to the time period we're looking at, and just not really caught on, so to speak. For example, uh, the vampire of Dusseldorf, who we've talked about on our main podcast, Old Timey Crimey, Peter Curtin, was arrested four to five years after the murders that we're talking about. He was in Germany. This is in America, obviously. And there are arguments that Ernst August Gennat used the term Syrian murder, when writing about Curtin in the 1930 publication, Die Dusseldorfer Sexual Verbrechen. Isn't that the villain from Phineas and Ferb? <laughs> I have no idea. But uh, I do know it translates to the Dusseldorf sex crimes. Oh. And I will always, always take an excuse to read something in German. German is a fun language. It is really fun. You just get to sound so angry no matter what you're saying. So there are other places where it's actually sprinkled throughout history and literature. You can find all this at historyhunter.net in the sources. But this kind of, uh, it gives, I think, a possible explanation for maybe one reason why so much fear pervades this case, as we're going to see today. The lack of any real name to put to the phenomenon once it really got started. Yeah, well, and back then, swear words were out, too, so... Oh, no, they swore. <laughs> Not in the papers. Not in the papers so much, but in real life, they swore. They didn't even say, like, actual names for things in the paper. Uh, like, they would not say that you had diarrhea. They just wouldn't speak of it. Or they would say a stomach ailment. Yes, we're very vague. We're euphemistic. Um, and we talked about that, essentially, in regards to, you know, like, criminal assault... Um, in, in the, the ravage, first episode, ravage, yes. different, different euphemisms for sexual assault and such. So yes, it's, it's definitely, uh, it, uh, looking into the past and digging into crimes of the past, there's a certain amount of decoding you have to do, reading between the lines and such, and almost sometimes translating, like you're reading another language, even though you're reading what should be plain English. So a quick recap After the gunshot murders of Catherine Herbers and Howard Fisher on a lonely road in Fort Wayne, Indiana in May 1925, the police have three theories they're working with. Murder-suicide, which is discarded pretty quickly. Robbery, 
which they cling to like a jealous lover. A subset of the robbery theory is the bicycle bandit, whose name is pretty self-explanatory. Yep. Yeah. And then theory number three, uh, an actual jealous lover who they think maybe murdered the couple in a fit of passion, uh, their jealousy aimed at one or the other of the couple, but probably a man who was in love with Catherine. And the police waffle back and forth on that one. They're not terribly consistent. Now, Detectives Kavanaugh and Junk are our main crime fighters here, or attempted crime fighters. They have the 38 caliber gun used in the murders, but they can't find its owner. They have burglary reports in the area, reports of a bandit on a bicycle. They also have the last person to see the unfortunate couple alive, who just so happens to be kind of sort of law enforcement, Special Deputy, uh, Sheriff's Deputy William Richter. He's acting real shady, which we'll get into. When we last left him, he had taken a suspicious vehicle to his garage just after having had the death car, as they put it, that Catherine and Howard were killed in, taken to his garage and washed before more evidence could be uh, obtained from it. Oh, I thought you said power wash. Oopsie. Oh, and also... um. I have intense, intense personal issues with the Fort Wayne newspaper of the day, the New Sentinel. But in this episode, I'm going to rise above that. Okay. I'm going to see the good in my nemesis. I will shower them with lukewarm compliments. So, eventually. Okay. I don't (laughs) believe you, but we'll see. No, you shouldn't. You shouldn't ever believe me. And if you haven't realized it yet, listeners, this is part two of a two-parter. If you haven't listened to part one, you should do that. That would probably help those confused feelings you are experiencing. Or keep going with this if you like those confused feelings. Uh, I'm not one to judge, so unless you're a newspaper in Fort Wayne in the 1920s. And then Judgy Judgy McJuggerson. Oh, damn right. So we're going to start out talking about the various persons of interest that started popping up in the days following the murders. And we're going to start, of course, with William Richter. He is by far the most compelling of these persons of interest, given all the different points of involvement he has. He already has the fact that he's the last person to have seen them alive. He shooed them away from the abandoned schoolhouse, basically right to the spot where they were murdered. And the car ended up at his garage where it was cleaned. Two days after the murder... There's a mysterious car that's been parked in front of his in-law's house for a couple of days, so he has it taken to the OK Garage, (laughs) the the garage that was definitely not named with the help of a motivational speaker. The mediocre garage. The uh, it's all right garage, which he owned with his brother. So that same night, after he had that mysterious car taken in, William Richter was brought in to the police for questioning. Uh, Not actually originally brought in for questioning about the murders. They managed to bring him in on another charge, believe it or not. Assault and battery. Yep. Yep. He had a temper. He had a bit of a temper. Uh, At 4 a.m. on Saturday morning, he was brought in for assault and battery on E.H. Rapini. They, of course... We're not wanting to talk so much about that as they wanted to talk about the whole murder thing. 
Oh, yeah. Like, I, I have an article where the only thing it says is, uh, he was arrested on a charge of assault and battery following a mix-up with another man on the street here last night. A mix-up. That's literally all it says about that. And it's like, well, we have you. Let's, uh, let's see about your whereabouts on this evening that uh, these two people were killed. That's what we really want you here for. Yeah, definitely. I, th- I think we know what the police are interested in here. Definitely the murder. So Richter did give a straightforward accounting of his actions uh, the night of the murders. He and a companion who was driving were patrolling around the schoolhouse as they'd been ordered by the sheriff. Now, I feel it's necessary at this point to clarify how his position worked here with the sheriff's department. He had a special deputy sheriff position that was without pay. This was kind of like a volunteer position. He was a uh, police hall monitor, essentially. Really, yes. It was for one reason only, to patrol the country roads for petting parties. So essentially for cars where couples were in there getting frisky with each other. I feel like that's an excellent job for any voyeur. (laughs) Really, yeah. (laughs) They pull up alongside and they're sitting there like looking at the fogged out windows and they're like, yeah, yeah. I just imagine you unhook that bra sitting there until he sees the car shake or something and then be like, here's my time. (laughs) This is my time to shine. I don't know why I'm giving him a southern accent, but so, yeah, this is essentially the whole reason he was brought in. He didn't get paid, but there was definitely a kind of quiet benefit to this position. He got to be kind of the unofficial garage of the precinct. He got called in for tow-in work, repairs, storage of cars that were found abandoned in that area. So it definitely brought him a lot of business. Well, yeah, especially for if you can tow, because then you're going to get the car accidents, too. You're going to get anything like that 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 needs towed, and that's a lot of money. That is a lot of money, yeah. This definitely was, you know, he was not doing this necessarily just because he really, really believed in law enforcement and that people should not be able to pull over on a country road and make out. He he just wanted to see some boobies. We all know. Yeah, we all know. They're boobies, so. Uh, Yeah. So he had been ordered to go and patrol for petting parties. It's not clear what the deal is with the companion, I, I lean towards the fact that he just had a buddy with him and he was like, hey, come with me. I'm going out to look for, you know, make out hill or whatever. Uh, it, I don't think he has a sort of any sort of partner in this make out patrol or whatever. And this person is not named at this point. They're only referred to as a quote unquote companion. So I just think they're they're being left unnamed at this point just because there's no reason to name them. Yeah, because they don't, they don't work in any official capacity, but it's like, hey, I'm just going to drive around. You want to come with me? Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason to believe that they have anything more to do with this whole scenario than there is, you know, like there's no reason to believe. So He, he had beer. We were just going to drink and drive. Yeah. <laughs> it is 1925. Yes, they were. So uh, farmers had been making, quote, vigorous complaints about petting parties which infest the roads in the neighborhood. Infest the roads. I know. Okay, we have, we, we have a couple of really interesting word choices there. Vigorous? I, I caught that, yes. Yeah, and infest. It, 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 that sentence takes you on a journey. It really does. At first, it's kind of a, it's a really intriguing journey. And then it goes to a bad place. Yeah, and it... I, I really, at the end of the day, think that that reporter just had a word of the day calendar. <laughs> I was like, let me use these words. I'm behind. They got a thesaurus for Christmas. <laughs> so uh, they, uh, 
Richter and his companion arrived at the schoolhouse. They saw Howard's car as well as another car, and they were parked on opposite sides of the road. They told Howard and Catherine to scram. Howard made no arguments, just turned around and drove south. The second car that was there at the time also did the same. Richter and his companion then headed east back to the Lincoln Highway and then to the garage on Mommy Ave, right around the corner from Daddy Issues Street, which Richter and his brother ran. Of course, this is the garage where Howard's car ended up. And literally, the detectives arrived as the garage employees were washing it. Can you imagine how crestfallen they must have been to get there and be like, oh, no, no, guys, no. Are you kidding me? (laughs) And see, that's not the only thing that police have a few questions about. And at this point, they still think, you know, they're they're still like, Richter is the one who ordered the washing. But there's more. Richter is alleged to have had previous disputes over a garage bill with Fisher. Mm-hmm. Richter is one of the proprietors of the, well, we already know that, of the OK Garage. But at this point, the coroner, Dr. Harry G. Irwin, jumps in and backs up Richter, even kind of pulls him out from underneath the bus, and says, I sent the car to the OK Garage. I thought it was the nearest one, and I thought we were kind of done with it. So, you know... It's, he's fine. Leave the, leave the poor boy alone. He's just a special little deputy sheriff. The detectives at this point say that there's no direct evidence linking Richter to the murder. Yeah, because all the fingerprints and blood was washed out of the freaking car. Uh, kind of on Richter's orders. So yeah, yeah. It's because of Richter. There is no direct evidence linking Richter to the murders. And they are right about that, yes. And, uh... We do have some more circumstantial evidence. The detectives asked Richter, do you have a 38 pistol? You know, like the one that was found in the murder scene. Not anymore. Not anymore. And he says no, because apparently not a single person in Fort Wayne, possibly all of Indiana, nay, the entire Midwest, owns a 38 caliber pistol because every single person they've asked has said no. But here, okay, before my lukewarm compliments come in, I have to rant a little bit. Okay. Okay, they have to earn my lukewarm compliments with a rant because the excruciatingly tolerable Fort Wayne New Sentinel did this to me. This information about Richter's answer regarding the pistol is given to us on page one above the fold in the article where they detail what happened when Richter was brought in. It's around paragraph 10 simply said he denied owning a 38 caliber and efforts were being made to trace the one found on the scene. Then all the way down at the very bottom of that column, it says, quote, Richter is said by two men to have owned a similar gun to that found in the death machine. Okay, wait a second. That's really intriguing information, but there's nothing more about that. There's I only- really like calling the car the death machine. Oh, I know, I know, I know. Death sure. machine is fantastic. Why there aren't like a million death metal bands named that is beyond me. So then there's a whole column more. Him describing the night of the murders, all kinds of stuff. And then it says, continued on page 25. So we flip 24 freaking pages to the business and markets page. And you're thinking, okay, so there's probably no more details about those two men who said that he owned a similar gun. 
important detail like that, they would have elaborated when they first brought it up, right? And yet, and yet, three paragraphs from the end of the entire article, which is probably 50-ish paragraphs, if not more. And I quote, Motorcycle police, Vashon and Burton today, declared the gun found in the car corresponded to a gun they had seen in the OK garage and owned by Richter. Oh, oh, they have names. Oh, and they're policemen. And you're telling us now on page 25, right next to the freaking Toledo hog market receipts? Hogs market 20 cents higher. Heavies 12.50 at 12.75. Mediums 12.35 at 12.90. Yorkers 13 at 13.10. Jesus Christ, are you serious? That is journalistic freaking malpractice. And bad writing too. Damn it. <sighs> Damn it. Okay, all right. Okay, all right. <laughs> I need to breathe a little bit. <laughs> Did I pop any blood vessels in my eyes? No, they're, they're starting to go down. <laughs> Are there any veins pulsing in my head? Okay, all right. This is a smaller thing, but I did notice that the newspaper listed the address of just about everyone mentioned in the article, including the assault and battery victim, but they didn't list the addresses of Richter or those two motorcycle police. Well, no. So it's funny how being police gets you immunity from having the public know your address. Obviously, obviously, you're not gonna want that information to get out. Yeah. All right, let me wrap up the Richter stuff here. Wrap on Richter. The abandoned car situation that he had sent to his garage had been stolen from Chicago on May 6th. They wouldn't know whether it could have been involved in the murders until they determined the hour of the theft, and they never really brought it up again, so it seems like it must not have been involved. Regarding the assault and battery charges, they had Richter arraigned on those. He was out on $50 bail. The trial was set for the following week, and just to close the book on that, Richter, the story is Richter had told Rapini to turn his headlights on. I guess Rapini didn't. Richter hit him in the face because committing assault while in the line of duty is just what we do. That's and just police work. That's just police work. Especially when you're a freaking volunteer who's just supposed to be telling people not to make out. And the trial happens. Rapini backs down and is like, hey, it was totally someone else. And Richter is, of course, let go. The captain of detectives put out an appeal to the occupants of the second car asking them to, to come forward. Interestingly, said, hey, if you do this, we won't tell anyone who you are. And we won't mention whatever information you give as to Richter's attitude that night. He's very specific about that. Doesn't just say, like, we won't release any information you tell us. Unfortunately, they don't have much to say. So we'll just, that'll keep until later because there's going to be an inquest. And we'll talk about them at the inquest. Same with the companion. He talks at the inquest. But again, what he says, not explosive. It'll keep. So I do want to throw in one little tidbit of information that is related, but not on, on Richter. Yes. So did you see the bit about his grandfather I and don't... namesake? I don't think so. His grandfather, also William Richter, apparently was struck by a car on March of that year. Oh. And he had a fractured skull and a fractured right arm. And he did eventually pass on March 31st, maybe a catalyst for some action in May. 
Interesting. So R. William Richter is listed in William Richter Sr., but not Sr. because... So it was the, the old William Richter, his son Harry, and then R. William Richter, the grandson. But it also lists that his brother... Well, brothers, he had one half-sister and two half-brothers. So it was not a full-blood brother that helped run the garage. Oh, okay. It was a half-brother. Okay. Interesting. Which I, I found in, in the the senior Richter's uh, obit. But yeah, so I just thought that was really interesting that it was like right around the same time. Mm -hmm. That's just a couple months before the murders, yeah. A couple months before the murders, something happens. Your grandfather dies after getting hit by a car. I also have something that is not related, but just kind of, just kind of mentioned in the papers, and it just kind of got my, the little hamster that lives in my brain started running on his wheel. And Such great hamsters. It's, it's a really, it's a fabulous hamster. Where's a little tiara? Um, so there were some comments mentioned in articles that there were, people thought men would go out to Lover's Lane disguised as deputies and extort couples under the guise of a fine. You know, you're not supposed to be out here. The fine's $100 or whatever. I could make a whole theory out of that being an actual deputy and a companion, maybe mm -hmm. also a cop, maybe not, donning uniforms and doing that, you know, in their town. Maybe a coroner even? Maybe a coroner even. Then it goes bad uh, because one of them has, you know, a bad history with one of the robbery targets or is recognized. I know you. I know you're not a deputy. I'm going to tell the real police what you're doing. Yeah, what the hell do you think you're doing? I know there's no fine. What are you talking about? Things get a little scary after that. There's a close call. So they decide to keep up the game and move it out of town, out of state even. But, you know, you can just ignore me. It's just the ravings of someone with too much time on her hands and a really active hamster in her head. So that's all I'm saying. Just that hamster. If you're going to sue anyone, sue Louisa the hamster. I had to come up with that name real spur of the moment. I'm going to, I'm going to regret it later. I'm just saying I'm going to come up with something better later. So, all right. So five days after the murder, May 12th, to their credit, the egregiously agreeable Fort Wayne News Sentinel offers a $500 reward and a gold medal to anyone offering information leading to the arrest and conviction of the Slayer. I think this might actually be the first time we've had a gold medal actually brought up. Like, I, I've seen them give a gold medal as a reward, but I've never actually heard it as part of the reward. Usually they're like... We'll give you a gold medal. Yeah, usually they, they just count on the money to be the, the enticement. Meanwhile, the headline right next to that announcement tells us some really kind of conflicting news. There's a banner headline that shouts that police, quote, may arrest Slayer soon. But then there's a smaller subhead that kind of mutters about a new suspect and two other men being exonerated. So sounds like maybe the investigation's not going as well as one might hope. The police do admit in that article that maybe they kind of overreacted with the whole bicycle bandit thing. They did find some footprints and a scrap of tire in a wheat field near the murder scene, so they're just going to run that clue down until they can't run anymore because they feel like they have to get it out of the way before they can move on. They've got some pretty severe 
tunnel vision here. Yeah, you got to beat that horse to death. Really, really. And again, I'm almost certain those tracks were not made the night of the Fisher Herbers murder. I'm pretty certain they were made the previous night when there was another incident in that area. And uh, trust me, we're going to come back to the bicycle bandit bullshit. But uh, it's ongoing while other things develop, sort of simmers in the background. It does seem to always be in the police's head, as we're going to see pretty soon here. Because they're always trying to connect other persons of interest to this bicycle bandit idea. So let's talk about another person of interest, Harry, alternately Stone or Stoner. I went with Stoner because it's funner. It is more fun. It is more fun. So Harry uh, Buck Stoner, as he was sometimes known, 45 of Elkhart, Indiana. Now that's about 70 miles from Fort Wayne. It's not even in the same county. He was arrested a couple days after and questioned for several hours. How this came about is the county coroner called the detectives and the county prosecuting attorney and told them, and also someone told reporters, someone, someone to go to Elkhart and bring Stoner into custody. Monday night, on apparent good evidence, officers with newspaper men rushed to Elkhart, where Harry Buck Stoner, aged 45, was taken into custody for questioning. He was grilled for one hour and a half, but a checkup of his story proved his apparent innocence. So they thought Stoner had been in Fort Wayne the night of the murders, but he had a pretty good alibi. He'd been traveling around looking for work, was in Ligonier, Indiana that night, and then rode his bike the 40 miles to Fort Wayne the next day to inquire about jobs. That is a hell of a bike ride. There's a lot of bike riding. There, there's People must have had some well-developed calves, let right? me tell you. Calves that looked like they had a, you know, a nice big juicy orange in them. <laughs> and also another side note, um, for those that don't know, we live in Pennsylvania. And it would seem, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not casting blame here, Indiana. I'm just saying you have a lot of town names that we also have. We were here first. I was just going to say that. She stole uh, what I was going to say. You stole our town names and she stole my words. People keep on taking my shit. <laughs> I'm just saying if we could all stop that. That'd be great. But anyhow. Um, so about Harry Stoneher. Is he maybe not the best citizen? Maybe. Eh, yeah, I have a little, a little blurb about him. It's maybe, that doesn't, doesn't paint him in the best light. And just a note about this blurb and some of the wording in newspaper articles uh, for any new listeners, or if you haven't listened to much, you know, historical and true crime stuff that delves into the old-timey newspapers, yeah, they talk differently. <laughs> uh, they said things in a way that we don't say them, and uh, we kind of just roll with it because, uh, well... At least we get to feel better than them because we don't talk that way anymore. I don't know. Sure. <laughs> so uh, I had a whole much more um, highfalutin explanation written up there, but I decided. Eh. Don't be highfalutin today. Nah, not highfalutin. Stoner, Elkhart police officers say, rides his bicycle around the roads about the city nightly and has caused many complaints. Not normal mentally, he has been accused of attempting to steal a horse and with petty thievery. He also is alleged to have attempted to criminally to assault a deaf and dumb woman, but was fought off by her. He was never prosecuted on any of the charges. Stoner is six feet, two inches in height, 
and has extraordinary strength. Yeah, not strong enough to hold off a woman. He has been known to pick up the front end of a Ford and walk around bearing the weight. Maybe she was just really good at fighting, got a good, good shot in, you know. That knee was, she had a nice bony knee. Oh. <laughs> you know. <laughs> could be, could be. Good on her. Yeah, right? I'm, I was like reading that and just like mentally cheering her on. <laughs> right? And I'm, I'm, I understand the horse. I mean, if you're riding 60 miles on a bike, I understand stealing a horse. Oh, I get the horse. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So it seems like it was just that someone saw him on his bike the day after the murder, maybe knew his track record or had heard of his reputation or an exaggeration thereof. We all know how small towns are and made an assumption, but he convinced the authorities he had no knowledge of the double killing and he hadn't even been anywhere near there and they pretty much let him go. All right, so next person of interest is not so much a person of interest, just it kind of shows you sort of how the police are just tromping around like elephants, just kind of destroying everything in their wake. So there's this guy, Stanley Pecora, and he lives about 400 feet from the crime scene. His wife has just had an operation. And it seems like when the police come to ask him questions, maybe they're a bit too belligerent about it or something, or they just spook him somehow. And he just runs for it. Um, it. It does seem like the police were a little too quick on the trigger. The newspaper puts it like this. Fleeing from his home and ignoring shots from detectives. Ignoring shots? <laughs> yes. How rude of him. He ignored their gunshots. How uncouth. How dare he? <laughs> Next thing you know, he won't send them a thank you note. Yes, so he left the city. They didn't actually think he was connected to the murder. They thought he was trying to elude liquor charges. They just wanted to ask him some questions. He did show up a few days later and come to the police station. He said, you know, I was just scared because I did buy a few gallons of alcohol for my wife to use after an operation. Remember, it's 1925, so we're in Prohibition. Um, and I just want to tell everybody I had two whole operations last fall and... Zero ounces of liquor purchased for me. And Mrs. Pecora gets two whole gallons? Well, in fairness, they also probably realize it's not the best for healing. <laughs> Silly them. All right. And then, of course, we have another nickname because why not? CJ Slim Hart. So he had been a boarder at the Herbers' house. And apparently he used to, quote-unquote, annoy Catherine. There's another one of those euphemisms we talked about. Harass. Harass, uh, which even that can be a, a euphemism of its own because it's, it, it's an umbrella that covers a wide range of behaviors. Um, so, yeah, it, 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 annoy can be anything from sexually harassed to stalk to sexually assault. It could be, you know, he's living in her house. Could be anything from he watches me sleep to he felt me up in the hallway to he left a dick daguerreotype on my pillow. You know, there's there's any number of things. Depending on the audience and the speaker, you know, if you've got somebody who's really, really not the type to say anything blatant, it could even be like rape, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, so all three Herbers girls were said to be afraid of Hart while he lived there. 
Uh, he also came home drunk several times, which to our audience probably doesn't sound like that big of a deal. But remember, these are young girls. Their father died when they were young. They're probably not exposed to very much. And this is just a strange man coming home drunk. Well, and also also think, too, so they don't have a father figure. Mm-hmm. And then they have a scary drunk man in their house. Who's going to protect them? Because, like, that's traditionally, especially in the 20s, that's the father's job. Mm-hmm. So they they probably feel like they're flapping in the wind a little bit as far as safety goes. Yes. And we don't know what kind of drunk he was. Everybody knows there's different kinds of drunks. There's the happy drunk. There's the, you know, giggly drunk. There's the funny drunk. There's the violent drunk. There's there's the touchy-feely there's drunks. There's the touchy-feely drunks. I hate the touchy-feely drunks. You and I have experienced a, a touchy-feely drunk before. It, it was not fun. No, it was not fun. No, no. We've been there. We don't like that. So, yeah, it's it's very much a precarious situation and a difficult one, especially and especially in that age where women are just kind of expected to, you know, just shut up and deal. Yeah. You can't even defend yourself against it. You can't talk back. You can't just, like, leave the room. You'll be thought rude. Oh, I hate it. I hate it. Why, old-timey times? Why must you be like this? Well, you know what? They could just call you dumb as long as you are allowed to kick them in the balls. I'd be fine with that. That would work. Yeah, that would work. So, uh, back to uh, Slim Heart. So, regardless of what he did or didn't do, he was banished from the house in uh, April, according to Mrs. Herbers. He was hard to track down after that when the police were trying to find him. He had left his job with the Pennsylvania Railway Roundhouse uh, one at the same time he left the Herbers house. And his buddies down at the soft drink parlor near the house hadn't seen him since then either. So basically, like, nobody set eyes on him. Their best leads had him in Huntingdon, 25 miles away. Now, they did have a kind of a loose description of the bicycle bandit uh, as to height, weight, and general appearance, and Hart was said to match this. Quote, Hart was a roughly dressed man, members of the Herbert family say, was six feet tall and was slender, weighing about 150 to 160 pounds. His general appearance was rough. He was about 35 years of age, but looked to be 40 years old. He wore large shoes, blunt at the ends. Tracks of the bicycle bandit leading across a wheat field are of a shoe about size 10 and a half and are blunt or round-toed. So, I mean, it's a very general, general, broad description. Uh, it could fit a lot of people, probably. They're making a lot of these shoes, but... The one little hitch here is when he lived at the Herper's house, he never owned a bicycle. But the police are like, well, the bicycle bandit is known to have bought his bike sometime in the last three weeks. Oh, brand new bike. How convenient. We'll we'll get to that in a minute because it's like, I'm not entirely sure where they got that. And uh, they also had started calling the bicycle bandit Dutch. Uh, They believed that he was maybe from Germany, Denmark. Uh, they kind of, Sweden, they kind of like switch it up, but something in that general, very general area. Somewhere in the middle of Europe. Yeah, something like that. Um, which is kind of rough because one of Catherine's brothers, his nickname is Dutch. Ooh. 
So their main theory here revolves around the fact that previous robberies by Dutch, as we're calling him now, the bicycle bandit, hadn't ended in shootings. He just accosted people on the road, stole things from them, occasionally pinched a behind or something. And they think that's because this time he was recognized. As in, he didn't know until it was too late that he was robbing his former landlady's daughter and then had to shoot her and her boyfriend once it dawned on him that that was the only way out. And he also knew Howard as well. Uh, Fisher was a constant visitor at the Herberts' home while Hart roomed there. Mrs. Herbert said today, Hart had remarked several times, Mrs. Herbert says, that he would, quote, beat Howard Fisher's time with Catherine. Which is, I don't, I don't understand what that's supposed to mean. Is it supposed to mean I'll give her a better time than you, or? It could be, or it could be like, I will spend more time with her than you. It feels like a violent way of phrasing that, uh, I'm just saying. It, it does. I, I completely agree. I don't like that. But yeah, it, it was, he was making some sort of competition with Fisher about spending time with Catherine in one way or another. Yeah, he definitely was making it a competitive thing, which is kind of strange and also phrasing it in a semi-violent kind of way. But once Hart hears that they're trying to track him down, after about two days, he shows up at police headquarters. Heard you're looking for me. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm here. Here I am. I'm Slim Hart. He alibis out. He says he had a new place. He was rooming with three dudes, you know, real ensemble buddy comedy material if you're looking for a, a new script idea and they could all vouch for him and as for the whole quote-unquote annoying Catherine he said well all I did was you know one time I was drinking and I came home and I went into the girl's bedroom and I shook Catherine and I told her it's time to get up which I believe her account a little better even if we just add in the fact that he was drunk and she wasn't yeah. And still, oh, creepy. Don't like it. Yeah, and, and like, how did you shake her? Did you shake her with your hands? Did you lay on top of her and try to shake her with your pelvis? Yeah, where did you, where did you grab her? Where was the shaking occurring? Was it her shoulder? Was it her boob? <laughs> you know, was it her hip? <laughs> yeah, like, what were you shaking and with what part of your body were you shaking? Did you motorboat her? Because that could be considered shaking. <laughs> that could be considered shaking, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I definitely believe her. Uh, he said he'd never been jealous or paid her undue attention. That and sounds then, false. Again, I believe Mrs. Herbers in, in this case because she kicked him out. Yeah. And she wouldn't just kick out a paying boarder for no reason. She was protecting her children. So they also look at his signature. Now, they do that because they had found a piece of paper with some handwriting on it at a shack where they suspected Dutch had been living. Okay? I was going to ask you about the handwriting. I'm like, was there a note in the car? <laughs> like, what? Huh? So he had rented this shack, kind of like stable. It was just like an outbuilding on a property just outside Fort Wayne on East Pontiac Street Extended. It's about half a mile from the murder scene for about three weeks prior to the murders. Uh, he this, this man, was who we're calling Dutch, was unemployed, slept during the day, went out at night. The landlord was named William Lambert, 
he said this tenant, Dutch, had a brother near Fort Wayne who was a farmer. And Dutch would show up to his landlord with chickens saying, hey, my brother gave me his chickens and I'm just going to use these to pay my rent. We'd give him two and a half chickens per week. I don't know how we go about this, but okay. <laughs> At a rate of $1 per chicken. I'm hoping that he paid bi-weekly. Because <laughs> otherwise, how creepy. Here are your two live chickens and one half chicken. And also, like, how was it a half chicken? It's going to be the half goat thing all over again. You're going to be surprised that the chicken thing actually gets creepier. Oh, good. Yes, yes, yes. I know you're excited. I'm excited for you. Uh, so this tenant Dutch had bought a new bike two and a half weeks before the murder. How many chickens did that cost? <laughs> <laughs> like uh, 7.36. So is that like seven and a large chicken thigh? <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. So um, now the thing about that is, I'm assuming, the newspaper didn't say, but I'm assuming they got that information from William Lambert. And I'm just, I think they're just attaching that to anyone who comes along who is a person of interest. They're like, well, if they have a, you know, if they don't have a bike, that's not a problem because our guy bought a bike three weeks ago. So he just has a new bike so we can assume it's anybody who happens to come along. I, I think you broke my brain. Because I am still stuck on paying rent with chickens. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know. I understand. It is definitely uh, a revolutionary concept. I'm trying to decide if I would like that. <laughs> well, I have ducks and uh, I do not want to pay rent in ducks. And uh, well, I don't pay. I have a mortgage. Uh, I'm just going to send some feathers with my mortgage payment tomorrow and see what happens. But, like, would I rent out my basement apartment for farm animals? Actually, that does sound like kind of a... That could work, yeah. I might. <laughs> I very well might. I like a goat to do the yard work for me. I don't have to mow the grass. All right, well, you figure that out. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, and the thing that really brought this to William Lambert's attention that made him contact the police was it turned out that a few hours after the murders were discovered... Dutch abandoned the shack and all of his clothing and his food supply and then just skedaddled. The bodies were found at 6 a.m. I'm sorry, I said after the murders. It was 5 a.m. when he left. The bodies were found at 6 a.m. So okay. shortly before. So it was, it was technically after the murders, you're correct, but it was before they found out. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it was between the murders and the murders being discovered. Yes. So... Dutch had gone to Lambert and said, hey, I'm going for a new job. I got to get out of here quick. I'm in a, he seemed in a hurry and he was wearing overalls. I'm all out of chickens. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> and so investigators came and checked out the shack and they found some burned clothing and part of a purse that had been burned. Ooh. The footprints that were at the shack matched the footprints around the wheat field next to the murder scene that we've discussed. The probably weren't made during the murder footprints. Um, which, you know, he lived half a mile away. He didn't have a car. 
He had a bike. But the burn clothes and the burn purse. There is some... It, it, it gets weirder. I just want to let you know that you're not really prepared for the weirdness. Yeah, because I, I actually don't know anything about this. This is all new to me. This was very... Uh, let me tell you. Again, thank you to our patrons uh, for supporting us because getting the subscription to the Fort Wayne News Sentinel um, made their 1925 reporters luxuriate in hell uh, was really a game changer for this entire story. What was going to be maybe a 30-minute bonus episode turned into this two-parter that is still going on right now. <laughs> Absolutely. So, like, I use our regular newspapers.com subscription. Thank you, Chris Garcia. And Christy used this awful newspaper that I did not want to mess with. And she has so much that I do not have, never heard about in the regular newspapers, even, like, local-ish newspapers. Mm -hmm. The Fort Wayne paper is not on newspapers.com. Yeah, because I went through all that, and I was like... There's, there's not there's enough. There's almost nothing here. And then I was like, well, I'll see if I can find another Fort Wayne newspaper. And yeah, they have it all behind a, a paywall. And the terms of the subscription are a little bit on the stingy side for, you know, most newspapers. But I was like, okay, I'll use some of our patron money. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's a wealth of information. It's just not presented in a very efficient manner, we'll just say. <laughs> so, and Amber had enough of my complaining and was like, I'm not even trying it. <laughs> well, so not only that, though, is, is it, it is a stingier uh, subscription. Yeah. And so I didn't want to cost us articles that you had already found. Yeah, yeah. There was, there was that risk of kind of overlapping each other and ending up, you know, kind of wasting. Yeah, so I am useless for most of this. <laughs> you are not I apologize. useless. I will provide color commentary and think about farm animals. You do a very, very good job at the color commentary and the farm animals. So, all right, let's talk about this weirdness here um, because you're just going to... I need to know what else. So, like, burned clothes, burned part purse. Yes, uh, the footprints. Uh, thirty-eight caliber cartridges. Yeah, so this totally sounds like where our murderer came from. Um, not necessarily damning, but, uh, concerning. There was a hole that had been dug outside the shack. It was, uh, eight feet long, five feet wide, and five feet deep. Had a wooden top and a wooden manhole, uh, was, it had been filled with water, but that could have been for maybe rain. I mean, it's springtime. Was said to resemble a grave. There wasn't really anything in it aside from the water, but there were items buried next to it. That is not a grave. That is a double grave. Maybe. Maybe. Five feet wide? Yeah. That's a double grave. Yeah. And the amount of time and effort. That's a lot dig. of digging. Five feet deep. I have a garden, y'all. <laughs> I am not digging that deep. And I was exhausted and had blisters. For the love of Pete, this is somebody that was going to put the bodies there. This is, this is definitely something messed up. Uh, so they find some items buried next to the grave. Okay, what were these or items? Hole, whatever. It's not a grave-like hole. Grave-like hole. Well, there were items that had been burglarized, stolen from the home of uh, Mrs. William Miles on April 26th. Ten days prior to the murder. 
She lived on New Haven Ave, about uh, three miles from the murder scene-ish. I didn't get an exact address, so just the road in general is about three miles away. Items included clothing, like the suits of her husband, Professor Miles. Uh, one still had his name printed on the label. The others had the labels cut out. A rifle, a strand of beads, a needle case, a ring. Uh, another of their rifles had been stolen, but was not found at the shack. Uh, then uh, Mrs. H.K. Hammond of Bowser Avenue also identified some silverware uh, that had been taken from her the same night, which uh, the resident of the shack had used to eat with. There were also bills and receipts and a pair of scissors that had been taken from her home. Hmm. Who takes bills and receipts? Come on! <laughs> so the authorities file a burglary charge against John Doe for that. And there are three other homes noted as having been burglarized, kind of in, that they feel like are related. It was in the same manner. There are kind of connections. But there's another one that's kind of a question mark. There's a home that was burglarized on East Rudsill Boulevard, close to at least one of the other victims of the burglary spree. And neighbors who witnessed the burglary said there were two men involved, two, and they were in a car, no bicycle. Well, and that that tracks, though, because if this is three miles away from the murder scene, and, and so at least... Two and a half miles away from from where the shack is, at at minimum, it would make sense that you'd be in a car because one, it's really hard to carry your wares on a bicycle, especially if you're like stealing suits and stuff. And three miles away to carry it, a wardrobe and a thing of silverware and two rifles, like that's excessive. You need a car. It so, would be so funny to watch, though. It would be a hoot. <laughs> But it's not likely, so it makes sense that he maybe got, like, a partner for a day that had a car and that got half of the stuff. So I take two guns, you get one, I get one. True, true. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, like, if if we were to, to go do crimes, I would give you half the stuff. Of course you would. I would do the same. <laughs> That's what friendship's all about. But obviously one of us might have like schizophrenia or something that needs to bury all of the treasure in the, the yard of the rental. Yeah, there's there's something that speaks to a mind that's not quite um, working properly here. That's not, that's not settled, that's not content. Uh, or was like, I know I can't take it, so let's hide it for later. And I can come back and get the stuff when I'm when I'm good. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Or some sort of hoarding issue. Could be something. Yeah, and underground hoarders. <laughs> All right, TLC, get on it. Yeah. And I'm just gonna read this next bit straight from the paper. I have no idea what to do with it, both from a narrative and a grammatical perspective. Oh, really? God. Okay. Um. So. The, when it says the man, it's talking about Dutch slash the resident of the shack. The man told Mr. Lambert, from whom he rented the shack, that he desired to raise chickens and was given a small plot of ground for his chicken yard. Unable to eaten a chicken at one time, he tore it to pieces alive when he did corner it. 
Hmm. Does anybody have any questions about why I dislike that newspaper? Questions? I, I don't think anyone has any questions about why you dislike it, because yeah. what? Uh, so, uh, I'm trying to get past the, the grammatical errors, but it's really hard to understand the sentence. So, he tried to corner a chicken. He tried to eat in a chicken, unless that's another word. Kate, Katen, cater a chicken? No, nope. It's rough print. It's rough to read. Um, so he tried to do something to a chicken, mm -hmm. could not do it, got mad, cornered the chicken, and then ripped it apart with his bare hands. And then when they were um, looking through all the things that were stolen there, they found the chicken parts on top of the uh, Hammond's missing belongings. Interesting. Weird. Weird. <sighs> yeah, I don't, I don't know where to go with that. Uh, th that seems like somebody that has definitely some mental issues now. Something, yeah. Like, exactly. at first, I'm like, maybe it's a, like just like a, a normal run-of-the-mill sociopath um, that likes pirate stories. And now I'm like, no, I, I don't know what's happening anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, everything's getting a little uh, off-kilter and hard to read here. But Dutch has really become the central focus of this investigation at this point. There's just a flurry of activity. Now, I wonder why this information was never put in other papers. Because this seems like the best. I know. This is the best lead that the police have. And they're like, let's just not talk about that. Let's just not talk about that. Yeah, right? <laughs> they, don't, they don't mention hardly any of this. It was... Really, the Fort Wayne News Sentinel, I will give them credit for being an absolute treasure trove of information. But this, it blows my mind. The burn clothes. There's blood on your clothes because you shot a gun and the splashback. Like, that makes sense. The purse, because I'm pretty sure that there was an article that said that her purse was missing. None of either their belongings. Nothing from their car, their belongings was found at the shack. But if there's half of a purse... It's not her purse. Oh, it's not her it's purse. It's not her purse. Oh, it could have been from the burglaries then. Okay. But still, the burnt clothes could be blood evidence. Could be, yeah. It would make sense. Why else would you burn clothes? He also burns some of the clothes that he steals. Oh. Yeah. All right. Maybe it's just a problem. He's Yeah, it's just a... But still, the grave... They're, they're, I think the problem here is we're dealing with a mind where we can't explain a lot of what they do. And we have an urge to explain. That's true. Because you know what? So, like, let me let me get out of my own brain and hop into somebody else's here. So, if we like to steal things and bury them, maybe the next thing he was going to steal was a horse. <laughs> so, maybe it wasn't a grave. Maybe he just planned on stealing a horse and was going to put it in the hole. Because that's what we do. We steal things and we bury them. More evidence for Buck Stoner. There you go. He wanted to steal a horse. <laughs> Stoner. So, uh, so yeah, they're they're all about Dutch, and they get a tip about a guy who's been seen in Warsaw, Indiana, on a bicycle, and he met the description of Dutch and seemed to be doing what he could to elude police. He was sleeping rough. He was taking side streets. I don't know what this means. But I'm going to read you a line from the newspaper, and okay. then we're going to move on with our lives. The man took a wooden leg from the barn in which he slept. And we're moving on with our lives. So, nope, nope, we're moving on. <laughs>
Maybe it is about pirates. <laughs> what? Okay. All right. Moving on, I guess. So the detectives and the sheriff and the prosecuting attorney who, by the way, his name is Samuel Jackson, and probably reporters because the reporters are in on everything, are on their way to Warsaw, which is about 40 miles away. I swear, they go on so many trips. These guys are all just in it for, like, the buddy trips, the bro trip. I mean, yeah, I can I can see that. They but... just want a road trip. I mean, yeah, it's the best. Good tunes, good snacks, good friends. Maybe you'll catch a murderer. Maybe you won't. But you know what you will catch? Herpes. Maybe. Maybe you'll catch herpes. Maybe you won't. You'll catch some good vibes, though. Oh, okay. Maybe the real murderer was the friends you made along the way. Mmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. And we're scrolling and finding. Okay, so. Yeah, Dutch has become the central focus. They uh, actually make up cards with descriptions of the bicycle bandit to distribute to the public. And I'm like, okay, thank you. Because you've barely had any description of any value in the newspaper. Oh, I bet this is going to be great. Yes, here we go. Age 45 to 50, light brown, sandy or dirty blonde hair, slightly bow-legged, height about 5 feet 7 inches or 5 feet 8 inches, prominent nose of the Grecian type, gray cat-like eyes, good teeth, smokes but does not chew, wrinkles in face, ruddy rugged complexion, which was shaped in the top box, wore wore a cap and also a Stetson hat style, Dresses in overalls, but also had a dark suit. Speaks in a soft, low tone of voice and uses some German expressions. He smoked a briar pipe. His hair was not thick, but was generally uncombed and appeared bushy. He walks with a quick, springy tread. He wears a number 10 shoe of the round toe type. He is fond of milk. (laughs) It's just just the weirdest damn thing to put in a description. (laughs) He is fond of milk. He is fond of milk, but then there's also, like, there's so many questions that I have. So he has blonde or a various shade of blonde or brown hair. Yeah. He is of average height. Uh, He has wrinkles, which is why they assume he's 45 to 50. He is bow-legged and yet walks with a springy step. Which those two things don't go together in my head. You're really good at picking these apart. It's like a it's like a talent you have. Uh, yeah, being judgmental. It's, I'm so good at it. Um, judgy, judgy McJuggerson. I, I, you've you've been out drinking with me. You know how I operate. <laughs> but like, how can you be bow legged and springy? Yeah, that's a good question. Those things don't go together. I don't know. I have issues with this description. Other than he likes milk, because I, I enjoy that a lot. <laughs> that is hilarious. I really hope that if, if I were to commit a crime and be on the run someday, there would be a description of me, and at the very end of it, it would say, she is fond of cheese. Just make sure of that, Amber. Okay? I, I will do my best. You tell those, those policemen, when they ask you about me, you make sure that you and everybody else, you really, really, really emphasize my fondness for cheese. Well, you know what? I, I think that we should actually do that, though. So th- so if you think about our age group, right, most of us are like undiagnosed, unmedicated ADHD. Yeah. And that means that most of us have a dopamine food, 
We have a food that is our go-to when we're stressed that we will always find a way to get back to. Yours is cheese. Mine is currently nachos. And so, like, if you're ever looking for, for me, you should say, she will order the nachos. She's very fond of nachos. And they're going to find me in the middle of the night at a grocery store with, like, the melty cheese and a bag of Tostitos. <laughs> like, <gasps> it, it, like I, that guy likes milk. He's going to go into your diner. He's going to get a large glass. <laughs> And you're not even going to think about it because he's an average looking dude. And then he orders milk and something in your head goes, ding, ding, ding. Motherfucker, you got here on a bicycle. I just want everybody to start looking with suspicion on anyone who orders milk. This is what I want from, from that's the result I want from this. I mean, I already do. <laughs> yeah. And there's also this idea that he, the, the whole, you know, uses German expressions. It changes daily. Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Germany. It's, it's a daily thing. You, you really never know what country they're going to pull out of their ass and decide he's from. It changes with the, the wind. I will give them this. The police have gotten in contact with authorities, um, other authorities in the state and the surrounding states. Basically, they kind of have put out like a be on the lookout. You know, they're, that's ahead of their time. As far as actually communicating with other agencies, that's amazing. I feel like there was really a missed opportunity to call him, like, the milkman or something. <laughs> oh, that would have been brilliant. And now this, this I am impressed by, I have to say. It takes a lot to actually impress me, but in 1925, they actually finally, after like six or seven days, sent appeals to radio stations to put out information with the description of Dutch and say, you know, hey, be on the lookout for this guy. They should have been doing it days ago, yes. But, you know, they didn't have really a great description before. And use of communication and broadcasting services, we see that more in the future. But that's pretty revolutionary for the time, I have to say. You didn't see a lot of that at that point. They take the gun to a local store and they display it there for anybody to come and look at. That's the gun that was found at the murder scene. The sheriff actually believes that a gunsmith may have rebuilt it at some point. The parts seem to be a mix of nickel and blue steel. And the handle doesn't really look like it was part of the original weapon. And um, at this point in the newspapers, we are nine days out from this murder. And this is the first time I'm reading about initials scratched in the gun. Kind of mad about that. I'm still mad about that. Yeah. And uh, it's just casually dropped yet again in the continuation of the article on the business page. You know, it's not even mentioned in the part that's on page one. The initials, which we do not get, did not match the name um, found on a card in the shack, which is where we also got that handwriting that they tried to match earlier. We do get the name found on a card in the shack, though. Fred Rowe. R-O-W-E. Okay. The card was from the Western Gas Construction Company plant where uh, apparently Dutch had worked for 10 days when he was employed. He had torn that card to bits. Police had reconstructed it. It was also known that while Dutch had lived at the shack, he had gone to three other places to apply for jobs. He'd been accepted and then just no-showed at each of them. So again, a little bit of a weirdness having that initiative to go out, apply for jobs, get them, and just be like, you know what, I, I'm not feeling it. 
I'm just, I don't like the vibes. There's this weird sense as they're kind of moving forward with the Dutch thing of like hope, but also complete futility. It's really weird, the, the sense that you get. Uh, this from the newspaper. Detectives working on the case are investigating the whereabouts of all degenerates known in northern Indiana. Many of the out-of-town trips of the investigators during the last few days have been for the sole purpose of checking on suspects. Some of the trips proving entirely valueless. Well, unless you count the value of bonding. That the murder may go down in police records as one of the city's unsolved mysteries was admitted by detectives today. However, with the description they have of the bicycle bandit, they hope for his ultimate apprehension. The county votes to add $1,000 to the reward fund with an additional $1,000 appropriated for investigation expenses, especially for trips outside the county. Road trip funds! <laughs> Snack quality is going to go way up. <laughs> like, no more generic chips from banal convenience store across from OK Garage. Nope, now it's time for the fancy stuff. Fancy stuff. We're getting name brand now. So, but they've got sheriffs all over the place looking in uh, the counties of Stark, Laporte, Marshall, Jasper, Pulaski, Porter. They've got posses of farmers and police, as well as Pennsylvania Railway police officers. They get a tip, Richmond, Indiana, then somewhere between Louisville and Knightsville, Indiana. Then one that a man matching that description had been seen heading for Indianapolis, about 125 miles away. Then Greenfield, Indiana, about 105 miles away. They end up looking for a Theodore Penn of Cincinnati, about, uh, I don't even know how far away. There's so much running around. I mean, if this were like a movie, they would put up a map and like comically have just like lines drawn all over with a little car as they like speed all over the state. Yeah, probably like the circus music, like do 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 as they speed around all the little points. That's exactly what was going through my head. Yeah. There was one, okay, so one man was found. I don't have what town he was found in, but it was 11 hours by bike. I did the math on that. Oh, Jesus. From Fort Wayne. He was taken into custody and held on a vagrancy charge with a bond of $2,000. For a vagrancy charge. But the bike he was riding was a different make than the one described as being ridden by Dutch. Okay, so not him. Yeah, just a big fat waste of time. They just used this excuse to pick up guys left and right on vagrancy charges. You know, a guy might match the description but not have a bicycle. A guy might match the description but have the wrong bicycle. The sheriff makes a trip to Ohio because a cyclist was seen crouched next to his bicycle by the side of the road near Antwerp, which is only 24 miles, so, like, not a big deal. But can we just have a little bit of self-awareness? Just a tiny, just a soupçon, please. Nope, nope. Quote, the cyclist was found and proved to be the son of a farmer who was frightened while en route home from a neighbor's house. <sighs> Probably frightened by someone who thought he was a killer because of all this hubbub. Which, you know, I give them credit for the whole, you know, like, reaching out to other authorities and broadcasting via radio and the, the cards, you know, putting out information and descriptions. But it does really seem to have worked people up. So that's the downside. You always have to consider those things, you know. When you put out a reward, 
how much false information are you oh, going to yeah. get? All the people that want money. Yeah. When you make a tip line, how many kooks and, and, and cranks are going to call in? How many resources are you going to waste on stuff like that? It's always a balancing act whenever you get the public involved. Pretty much everyone thinks any male between 15 and 65 is a murderer here if they're riding a bike or uh, look at a bike or have heard of bicycles. I've heard of bikes. You did it. Murderer. So then there's this Charles Hansen, whose name starts popping up a little bit. He's 44. He's supposed to be an escaped convict from Joliet Prison in Illinois, about 170 miles from Fort Wayne. He had been serving life for murder, and he'd escaped in 1917. That was the last photo they had of him, so like eight years ago. Did I say he'd been serving life for murder? Yes. Okay, all right. Well, now I said it twice. Ho ho. Ho ho. Very important. No, it's not really. People had, who had seen the inhabitant of the shack said that Hansen's photo resembled that man. All except the landlord's wife, Mrs. Lambert. The shoe size matched. His height fell in the range described by people who had met him. Uh, but that was a pretty big range. People said 5'6 to 5'10. He's 5'8 and 3 quarters. Close enough. It's right in the middle, actually. Hansen has chestnut hair, the bicycle bandit Sandy. Or brown. Or brown. Chestnut's brown. Uh, Hansen has a nine-inch scar on his right hip. Okay, that's not how I thought that was going to end. All right. <laughs> I was like, we know a lot about Hansen. We're oh. in Oh, my. <laughs> They really filled out his uh, file thoroughly. <laughs> Dutch walked with a limp in his right leg. Uh, but they don't have anything that actually connects him to the murders. Now, I did dig into to him and tried to find information. I would think somebody in prison for murder for life escaping would be a big deal. But it seems like pretty much everybody escaped from Joliet. <laughs> It was the it was the Warren County Jail of its day. I was just thinking that we had uh, I don't know if you, you might have seen in the news there was an escaped convict running around in Pennsylvania, and that was from my hometown. He um, got out with bed sheets. Bed sheets, yes. Um, so yeah, I looked into him. There's a Charles Hansen mentioned in a 1916 escape, but he was one of the group that was planning to go out, but he didn't make it. Like, a couple guys made it. He didn't. He was pissed. There were none in 1917. Um, I'm going to look deeper into the other years around those ones, but I, I don't have much hope. I, I feel like, you know, maybe they got the year wrong. Maybe they got his name wrong, something like that. Maybe, hilariously, it's Charles Manson. <laughs> I was thinking that because it does sound terribly familiar. But one of the biggest things that we see all the time is the multiple spellings of names. Because I even have an article here of William Wichter. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's possible that Hansen is spelled ten different ways, or Charles has, like, a sausage in the middle of it. <laughs> and I, yeah, I searched um, very targeted with my dates as far as the, the prison escape. So widening that search and checking for other names is definitely something. I'll update as I look further into him. 
but like I said, I don't have a lot of hope, but I'll definitely be, be digging in a little bit more and, and branching out. And they're, they're still tracking all over the state as the month goes on. This is the 1925 equivalent of turning on the TV and finding out there was a live car chase, except it drags on and on and on. Muncie, 77 miles away. Kokomo, 82 miles. Coldwater, Michigan, 64 miles. Ten days after the murder, we learn that five men have been taken into custody and released in just three days. Three weeks after the murder, more than 30 men have been held on suspicion and released in various Midwestern towns. 30 men. Wow. This is ridiculous. They frequently bring Lambert along on these uh, buddy, buddy road trips to identify the guy. And of course, Lambert's a big old nope every time. Uh, I love, again, I'm turning this into a film in my head. What a great montage that would be. You know, they show up, he goes to the jail cell and he crosses his arms and he just goes with, Shakes his head, nope, every time, and they all just deflate. Some sort of playful but not corny background music. So, uh, interestingly, this really perked my, not my ears up, but my, I guess my eyes, because I was reading it. One of Lambert's neighbors, Martha Bailey, says she did see a man digging behind the shack a few days before the murders. But she thought it was Russell Lambert, William Lambert's son, hmm. who had lived in the shack for several previous summers. She was sure when she saw someone digging back there that Russell was back. Oh, interesting. That is very strange. But aside from her, none of the neighbors saw anyone around the, sh the shack. Investigators tried to figure out, you know, where was he buying food? How was he surviving? But no shopkeeper in the area seemed to have sold him anything. Lambert said that Dutch claimed to walk to the grocery store seven miles, or sorry, seven blocks away, uh, saying that he couldn't ride his bike due to his boils. Mmm, yum. Oh, Dutch. Uh, but the grocer had no memory of the man. They uh, also, uh, they found another... Grave? Pit? Hole? I don't know. Treasure. Treasure! Um, but they didn't really find it. Sightseers found it. Oh, good. Yes, yes, as usual. Oh, gosh. This, the invention of police tape really needs to happen. So uh, they noticed it when the ground started giving way under their feet. So uh, brought that upon yourselves, people. Uh, another mention of the holes has the perpetually professional Fort Wayne News Sentinel casually claiming that its own men found both of the holes. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's lovely. This one was uh, five by six and then five feet deep, was covered with a sheet with dirt on top of it. Oh, it's so creepy. I don't like it. That sounds like a trap. It does sound kind of like a trap, like a little bit of a booby trap, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Especially the covering it with dirt. It's like the hole where you put the branches over it so you step on it and fall in. But also just maybe hiding the hole. Maybe. I mean, is it hidden just to hide the hole or is it hidden to make somebody fall into it? Either way, it, it's hidden. But we don't know for what purpose. Yeah, and it might not be a somebody, though. Like, So think like Crazy Mountain Man. Maybe they're just trying to catch like small animals to eat. Well, does it need to be five feet deep? 
Probably not. Yeah. I don't know. So at this point, they're positing that the bandit had accomplices and they keep finding stuff that belongs to the burglary victims in the holes, but they can't understand the logic of it, just like we can't. Uh, quote, seemingly the bandit and his accomplices carried away clothing and other articles, many of which were useless to them. Instead of attempting to sell the articles, they immediately buried them from four to five feet deep in soggy ground, penetrated by seep water, where the articles were certain to be ruined in a few days. Much of the clothing was cut to bits before being buried. That is really bizarre. Five feet deep for things, right? Like, for scraps of clothing and like trinkets and pin cushions or whatever. It's so strange. It is. This is very weird. Yes. And so judging by what they found there, they speculated that about 10 burglaries were committed, but still they find nothing, no belongings of either of the murder victims in this second grave-like hole. Nothing associated with the murder aside from those bullets that were the same caliber were found at the scene. Um, so it's still not necessarily linked by anything definitive. So they finally have an inquest. And now we hear from William Richter and his companion, who has a name. He has a name. Edward Stoll. Richter insists he didn't actually know either Herbers, Catherine Herbers, or Harold Fisher. He just identified them by the banner on Howard's car. He had a political banner. Remember, his brother had been running for uh, doing a primary for a political office. So he's lying. I think he's lying, yes. Well, no, because he had a, a money dispute with... Yeah, he had to have known... Howard kept his car at the OK Garage. Yeah, like, and there was a dispute over a bill at the garage. Yeah. And the two men fought. Like, not physically fought, but they had words. They had a beef. Yeah. So you can't be like, oh, I don't know who that is, except for he owes me money. And then another thing is that Stoll told his story, and he said pretty much a lot of the same things that Richter said, but he said he saw no banner on either car at the schoolhouse. And he gave different locations for the cars than Richter did. They don't specify in what way or how different they were. Um, and they also got the occupants of the other car in and their story backed up Edward Stoll's. The other car, the second. Yeah. yeah. Uh, another policeman backs up their story of what happened after the incident at the schoolhouse. Uh, so the... Stoll and Richter went to the city and saw uh, a city police officer on his beat. They knew the man, so he got in their car. They cruised around for 45 minutes and then went to a soda shop. Uh, if there is a conspiracy to protect Richter here, they're working hard to close up any gaps in it, I will say. They do have evidence that the cop was at two different places that correspond with their activities. Something that I think maybe has to do with like police procedure. He it's phrased something like he pulled his police card at boxes. I don't know if it's like something to do with checking in to like show your location or, you know, something along those lines, like reporting back to precinct. Well, and, and that kind of makes sense because I think now what they do is they go over the radio and, and kind of give the location every once in a while just so if, if they need to be found, it's mm -hmm. really easy. They're heading north on this road, like whatever it might be. 
or they might have definitely done that before GPS was so um, prevalent. Yeah, I, now I you can probably just like to. look on a map and see little dots. <laughs> ping me, yeah, just ping me. So yeah, that pretty much like wraps up Richter and and everything. Still with some questions, but as the month winds down, it's really only been like two and a half, three weeks since the murders. But we're getting headlines like cops clinging to hope about how the police won't call this an unsolved case yet. Articles about how Dutch has all but disappeared, how there are so many wild rumors the police have tracked down that have ultimately come to nothing. And it's but three days, but three days after that, that the editor of the supremely self-aware New Sentinel writes this glorious editorial titled, Do They Admit Inferiority? Oh. <laughs> it's just beautiful. Four weeks ago tonight, Howard Fisher and Miss Catherine Herbers were brutally, fiendishly murdered at the edge of the city. Today, the hellish beast who committed the crime is still at large. He may be here within the city limits of Fort Wayne. He may have sat beside you today in the streetcar at the restaurant, in the bus. He may be at your elbow tonight at the theater. Black mystery surrounds the whole tragic event. The identity of the murderer is the Slayer's own dark secret. Tonight, as you drive down some still, forest-canopied stretch of country road, the beast who killed Howard Fisher and Catherine Herbers may be lurking in the darkness, armed with another weapon, ready for another slaughter. What if then? You have tire or engine trouble. You stop to make necessary repairs. The prowler steals upon you and presses his cold, deadly steel against your head. One shot may dispose of you. Another report will signalize the passing of your companion. Then, as silence settles down again upon the countryside, is there anything to guarantee that the authorities charged with the protection of human life will be able to apprehend this fiend, no matter how often he repeats his awful deed? Who killed Catherine Herbers and Howard Fisher four weeks ago tonight? Are the authorities going to risk offending suspects by questioning and grilling? Or do they prefer to spare the feelings of possible informers and, thereby, permit the tragedy on the Hessen Castle Road to be listed with Fort Wayne's other unsolved murders? Are those charged with the administration of justice, the enforcement of law, and the defense of life and property hereabouts willing to admit that this community's criminals are more clever than its officials? Wow. Somebody wanted to write plays and not newspapers. Because drama. Somebody wants to get the townspeople all scared and riled up with their pitchforks. I like pitchforks. They have their purpose. They have their time and place. I'm always a fan of mobs. But I think we can kind of see that people are already kind of scared and freaked out. Anytime that you're, especially in a small town, there is an unsolved murder, mm -hmm. you kind of assume that it's probably either one of your own or somebody lurking in the shadows from out of town. And so it is really scary to, to know that there's somebody out there. Both of them are equally terrifying for different reasons. The stranger, the dark masked figure you don't know, or the masked smiling figure you do know but you don't really. Both scary. And th this is a town that probably doesn't lock doors at night. Like Oh, for sure, yeah. 
definitely that whole editorial when I read it, I was just like, you have got to be kidding me. <laughs> First of all, the gall of this newspaper to point the finger at anybody and say inferiority is really something. And second of all, people are already freaked the hell out. You can quiet down now. No, no, you want to know what he's doing? That reporter is is doing the Fred Durst of where you can either calm the crowd down or yell, everybody break some shit and watch him go nuts. Yeah, he definitely Fred Dursted the hell out of that. <laughs> there is a grand jury. At first, I will tell you, Literally, my notes say, oh, fuck, there's a grand jury coming up with 200 to 300 witnesses. Because I was oh. at this point in my notes where I was like, you got to be kidding me. But it is mercifully not that long. Um, I, I did enjoy this case, but I was reaching that point where I was like, no, come on. Because I know that there's no actual conclusion. I know we're not solving this. So this feels like it's dragging on. They're supposedly trying to get an indictment against Dutch or John Doe which would, in theory, alleviate rumors that the police were shielding someone who had a direct connection with the murder and would stop people talking shit in general. Quote, It is indicated that persons whose tongues have been wagging freely as they voice their pet theories about the murder and purport to have gained some confidential and startling information will be called to the grand jury to tell what they know, or what they think they know, and how they got it. Which doesn't really sound like uh, the purpose of a grand jury, to have people come up and just tell all the rumors that they heard. I don't think that's what we're supposed to be doing here. No, that's what they do in offices, not courtrooms. Yeah, um, but speaking of offices, there's going to be some newspaper men missing from the surpassingly principled uh, new Sentinel offices because they've been so involved in the case that they have to come down and testify at the grand jury. Lovely. You know that you've done a great job as a journalist when you're involved enough in a case that you have to testify at the frickin' grand jury. That's, that's great. That's great. We saw you in one of the holes. Mm -hmm. Yes, I was there. It is indeed five <laughs> feet deep because I am five foot six. You went on 17 road trips with the prosecuting attorney and the detectives. I was there for the snacks. <laughs> I was there for the snacks. Somebody paid me half a chicken. It is very heartening that every article about the grand jury mentions the judge like kind of almost tapping his watch in an old timey way. Uh, they say, unless tangible evidence of guilt develops, the session should not be prolonged. He basically is saying, stop wasting my time, please. <laughs> we all know this is a big, fat waste of time. So um, they basically say uh, that no indictment was returned by the grand jury against the alleged bicycle bandit is a cheerful reassurance of this community's continued common sense, regardless of the status of its would-be Sherlock's so-called intelligence comes from the newspaper after it's announced that there's no uh, indictment. Even though the newspaper itself had said the previous day that an indictment was likely. <laughs> They're hilarious. They, they actually do, when I'm not pissed off at them, crack me up. This way, that way, this way, that way. And just as the grand jury is winding down and about to decline to pass any indictment, something happens about 190 miles northwest of Fort Wayne. In Bloomingdale Township, Illinois. A town that is now lost, but back then was called Cloverdale. 
something happened in this small town that was strikingly similar to what had happened in Fort Wayne. So similar that phones were ringing off their old-timey hooks in Fort Wayne and Bloomingdale Township Police Departments as they exchanged details. A young man and a young woman went for a ride on a lovely June evening, and then they pulled over on a lonely back road. Someone crept up to the car, and we'll see you in two weeks. Just kidding, I have a little bit more to wrap up. <laughs> in the interest of how details change and shift over time, and something to keep in mind once we get out of 1925 and speed forward to 1930, where we're gonna talk about some similar murders that happened then. They hearken back to talk about the 1925 murders and they mention the bicycle bandit, they mention Dutch. So it's really interesting to see how they look back on him five years later. Totally different. <laughs> A shabbily dressed youth with marked feminine mannerisms. They're very different already. Yes who took up residence in an empty shack in the hills outside of Fort Wayne. They say possibly the old schoolhouse. So somehow that gets brought into it. Quote, it was noted that he never shaved and had noticeably small hands and feet. Which is not the size 10 round toe. Yes. So um, that is just something to keep in mind. And it's, it's a very, very kind of soft, quiet hint towards some of the interesting stuff that's going to pop up once we get to the 1930 set of murders. Yeah, well, and, and I also kind of feel like that's one of those, I'm going to recall it in my brain. I know it, so I'm not going to look it up. This is what I'm writing. And everyone reading it is like, ah, uh, that is uh, not. Okay. I feel like the events of those days in 1930 colored either the memories or the writing uh, of whoever was looking back to 1925. I feel like they, they had a, a reason or a motivation to uh, characterize Dutch as they did. Um, and then to, uh, to wrap up as far as the families are concerned... Uh, the, the victim's families here. Howard's father, Peter, died in 1942 at age 73. Uh, Howard's brothers died one year apart in their 50s. And then in just a few more years, uh, their mother, Mary, died. The whole family is buried together at Prairie Grove Cemetery in Fort Wayne. Catherine's family, by and large, made it into the 1990s. And they are also all buried in the same place, the Catholic Cemetery in Fort Wayne. Um, I had some final thoughts, but let me see if any of them are actually pertinent or if they were just things that were on my mind as I was writing. Okay, well, while you are looking oh, yes. through that, I will go ahead and tell you a little bit more about William Richter. Okay. So in mid-August of 1925, he made the news again, and this time they did give his address. So this was in uh, the town of Gary, I believe. There was an automobile accident in the neighborhood of Fifth Avenue and Englewood. 
So a the police were called because they believed a trio of stick-up men had stationed themselves on the highway. So about a half a dozen calls came into the police station, and they said that these men were trying to hail down motorists, and um, they thought it was like, you know, a robbery. Like, they'd, they'd get you to pull over, and then they'd rob you. So officers arrived, and they found three men, all intoxicated. They gave their names as William Richter of 426 Connecticut Street, who was booked on a charge of driving an auto while drunk, Victor Anderson from 714 Broadway, and Wilbur Mason from 525 Delaware Street, all drunk. They had been drinking, they got in a fight on the side of the road, and Richter had been knocked down and was lying in the road, supposedly unable to get up. But what motorists saw were two men standing near the car and one sprawled out across the street. Ah, so they thought they were seeing that old trick. It was a ruse to get them to stop the car and then get held up. So yeah, he made the news just a few months after all of this had died down. Hmm. Yeah, but... Were they like, oh, it just looked like we were trying to pull that trick because he's so drunk and we were standing there. That yeah. could be a cover story. It could be a cover. They were all intoxicated from what the police said, though. Well, they didn't have, like, you know, blood alcohol tests or anything mm-hmm. that I know of. That is true. I'm you could have just dumped some hooch on yourself and then laid down in the street. I am most of the time such a weirdly trusting individual, and then I have moments of being, like, super suspicious. Like, ha! Everybody's up to something! I, I want to say that as soon as you said his address, because I've been so, like, detail-oriented in my obsession with these murders, I, I immediately was like, where's my map? Where's my map? I must put it in my map. I have been... I kind of can forgive the cops for taking so many road trips the merest hint of a shadow, because by the end of this case, I was clipping articles that had even the tiniest bit of weirdness, the tiniest little bit. There was a 20-something-year-old young man who was caught prowling on a farm under the farmhouse. Ooh. I know. Creepy. Uh, Is that I, where they kept their chickens? <laughs> maybe. I added it to the murder map just because. Just in case. Just in case. Yes, I have a murder map. Um, I'll try to put a link. I need, I'm falling way behind on social media stuff, but I'll try to put a link on the social media stuff. Um, it's not, it's not too far off, though, because, I mean, if, if you're a vagrant, you can live under a house. That is true. That is true. It, it was definitely a weird thing. It's but a good yeah. place to bury your treasure. Under somebody else's house? I don't know. It feels like, I mean, I guess if you don't have a house, and I don't know, I'll bury it in the woods. That seems like it would have less of a chance of well, in the some woods, random happenstance making it be found. In the woods, anybody can find it under somebody else's house. Who's going to suspect a thing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess that's all I have on everything, too. Uh, don't forget that you can get early access to these episodes of the Lover's Lane Murders over on our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. In addition to bonus episodes, um, we're doing occasionally some episodes that have like a tangential Lover's Lane connection. Not necessarily, you know, anything related to this series of murders. Just like, oh, it happened on a Lover's Lane, you know, in 1939 or whatever. But... 
we're not sticking to that. I mean, I'm I'm not. I don't know if you are, but I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, I'm, I'm still doing whatever really catches my attention. Um, and uh, just for a preview for you, uh, my next one is going to be a woman who, while she was in jail, she made some clothing for her fellow inmates, but she didn't have any scissors, so she used her teeth. Oh. So, so some very inventive seamstress and murderer. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's going to be one of my next ones. So, yeah, uh, you can find our bonus episodes. We call them old tiny crimeys. They're like half an hour, 40 minutes-ish. And we have a lot of fun with those. That's kind of like a, a little bit of a let loose time. And we all also kind of revel in finding the weirdest shit we can for each other. Mm-hmm. Um, like, just weird, weird shit. It's a goal. It's, it is a goal, yes. So yeah, come on over and check that stuff out. And do, 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 do what other stuff? And a uh, shout out. Oh, also, no, I forgot. You can also listen to previews of each episode. Uh, they're about five to 10 minutes when you come over to the Patreon page without having to actually subscribe. And you can do a seven day trial before joining, which several people have been doing lately. And they seem to be satisfied because they're signing up. So. A welcome to new patrons, Nicole, Rach, Heather, and Justin. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. I think Justin is a returning patron, which, by the way, if you've left, which is perfectly fine, because sometimes you run out of material, we can only make new material so fast, come on back and enjoy the new stuff and the new early release and everything. We love to have you back. And uh, I honestly can't remember who's been where and what and left and came back, so I'm not going to be offended. <laughs> don't I, bother me. <laughs> I don't even know where I've been. I don't know. I don't know where I am half the time. So, so yes. Um, on that note, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, next episode, we will start the Bloomingdale slash Cloverdale, Illinois murders, and you'll hear about it next time. On Old Timey Crimey Presents The Lover's Lane Murders. Don't forget to set your parking brake. Bye. Bye. Sources. The Herald Palladium, Clinton Daily Public, Daily Sentinel Tribune, The Huntington Herald, Indianapolis Times, Rushville Republican, Reno Gazette Journal, The Star Press, Evansville Press. Those are all from newspapers.com. Thank you, Chris Garcia. Find a Grave, Fort Wayne News Sentinel. Uh, Reddit, Rails and Trails, and FakeHistory.net. Damn. I need to see if I wrote mine down. All right. Evansville Journal, the Scott County Journal, Muncie Evening Press, the Indianapolis Times, Hagerstown Exponent, Palladium Item, the Richmond Item, the Times, the Star Press, the Huntington Herald, all from newspapers.com. Thank you, Chris Garcia. Check a check a sound check sound check 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 check. This is the sound of my chick 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 voice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> oh, I should actually like talk normally because I was like doing my like my low very metal low. Check, We're check, check. white women rapping. This, this is, is really bad. Yeah. Literally as very low as it goes. Oh. <laughs> Oh, and then I just went lower. Yeah. The bar is in hell. The bar is in hell. <laughs> oh, end of the episode. Little <laughs> looper for the end.